Hello everyone, this is God Talk with Tara and I am Tara and we're going to jump in with prayer tonight and move right along. Um, Father God, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for your outpouring at Asbury. Thank you, Father, that that has gone out to so many places. Lord God, I have been so blessed to see um, the visual representations of, of how many areas of the world have been touched, Lord God, by you coming to the one place. And Father, I know that you are going back to all of those places, that you that you use us, Lord God, to catch fire and spread that around the world. So I pray, Father, for all those who will be traveling home in the next few days. I pray, God, for all of those at Asbury who I'm sure are going to be under a tremendous amount of pressure in the days ahead with complaints of them trying to squash your revival. Um, Lord, I am certain that you have been moving with them to tell them when it was time to draw this to a close. Thank you, Father, for the time that you gave for all of your children to gather that would gather. Thank you for the thousands that came, Father, and the work that you did in them and what you are doing as they return home. Father, may your kingdom continue to come. May your presence still be felt. And for us here tonight, I pray, Father God, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that you would give me your words to speak that I would be small, Father God, but you would be large. I pray that you would bring to mind every word that needs to be spoken. And I pray, Father, that they would be received. I know the topic that you have for tonight is a little difficult in our present society, Father. And I am sure that there are those that are going to hear this that are struggling with things that they need to hear this, Father. I am sure that when I go back and listen to it, there's probably things I need to hear as well. So, Father, I pray that we would be humble as we come to speak, as we come to hear, as we come to listen, as we come to share. And I pray that you would be magnified, that the hope of Christ, Father, in all of this would be magnified, that that would be the message that comes in in the end of all of this, Father, is that Jesus came as our Savior and as our Lord to lead us into reconciliation with you. That is the gospel. That is our truth. That is what we stand on, Father. So whatever comes out of my mouth tonight, Lord, I pray it is in that light. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm a little hesitant, as you might have heard from that prayer. Um, not that I'm hesitant to speak what God says, but because I, he wants me to talk about sin and what that looks like tonight. Um, and I didn't get a really clear picture of what it was he wanted me to say. He is usually pretty good about that. Um, but it has been a really, really full day today. And I mentioned yesterday about trying to listen to God throughout the day. And I have tried, but there has been a lot in my mind uh, that has been distracting. Um, most of it has been God ordained. There's been, there have been tasks that he has assigned me today, um, outside of this. So I'm trusting very strongly that he is going to lead me in what I need to say. Um, so 
kind of wanted to look at what is sin, because I think we have a misunderstanding in our culture today of what sin is. And because we have that misunderstanding, we have a really hard time repenting for some of the things that we do that we really need to. So, and, and it leads us into a drastic misunderstanding of God and a drastic misunderstanding of who he is and of what he asks of us. And so we have this perspective and, and there's a name for it. I, I ran across this when I first started studying apologetics. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism is the core beliefs of a lot of young Christians and a lot of older ones for that matter, that God wants us to be good. As he has told in the Bible, it is a, a good moral good that he wants us to be nice to one another. And that in the end, his goal is for us to be happy. And in order for us to be happy, we should be good because if we do unto others what we would have them do unto us, then they will do those things to us. And things will be good. We will be happy. Um, and that's not really who God is. And it's not really what his goal is. His goal is not our happiness, particularly not necessarily our happiness here on earth. We know this. If we read our Bible, we, we've got to be very aware of this because when we read the Bible, we see that all of the apostles ended up martyred except for John who died a prisoner on Patmos. Um, we see that Jesus was nailed to a cross. Uh, we see that there were hardships for the early church. There was persecution throughout the book of Acts. Paul was stoned multiple times and beaten and shipwrecked. And there's nothing in scripture that would lead us to believe that God's primary goal is our earthly happiness. Now, I will not say that our earthly happiness is of no consequence to God, because it does say that he pays attention to that. Um, and I will not say that if we are following God, there's no way for us to be happy in an earthly sense. That is also not true. But it's not God's point. That's not his purpose. His purpose is not to make us happy. His purpose is to make us holy. And oftentimes being holy is a frustrating and difficult task. And it requires us to forgo doing things that to us do not seem bad. They don't seem immoral. They don't seem wrong. And so we get frustrated and confused. And then we have an opportunity for the world to come in and twist that. So we're going to come back to that in a minute because that's the secondary issue. The, the primary issue is that we come into this space where if we believe that God's purpose is to make us happy and we believe that sin equates to morally bad behavior, that in other words, if it is morally wrong, that's what it means to be sinful, that that's the only thing it means to be sinful, that sin is about being morally wrong, then we look for all kinds of excuses to do morally, to make things more morally permissible. Um, and we hold God to a flawed moral standard. 
And, and we give ourselves room to condemn God because he does not meet our flawed moral standard because our moral standard, rather than being God's standard, becomes what makes us happy. And so suddenly we are angry at God because God has not made us happy and he is omnipotent. And he is um, omniscient. He knows all things. He can do all things. He loves us. And if we believe that God's purpose is moral therapeutic deism, it's to make us morally good so that we will be happy, then God is morally bad because we are often not happy and we are frequently miserable. And this is a deep, deep, deep misunderstanding of sin. It's a deep misunderstanding of God's purpose. It's a deep misunderstanding of our relationship to the Lord when we get into that mindset. And most of the time we don't realize we're in that mindset. We don't understand that. We don't think about it. So what we're going to look at is not, I'm not sure exactly how to put it. What we're going to look at is what is sin because it's not moral wrongness right so it's not evil or not just evil so doing evil things that we know to be evil is most assuredly sin that is definitely something that is sinful for us to do wicked things that we know are wicked for us to bash babies and 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 kill one another and commit adultery and do things that we know are wrong and that God has spoken and said are wicked in scripture, that is definitely sin, but it's not the only sin. And that's what I kind of want to look at a little bit tonight so that we can kind of get to this understanding. So one of the things I want to look at is actually what we hit on last night in Jesus in the desert with the devil. So Jesus goes out to the desert with the devil and the devil says to him, now we hear in, in the passage that Jesus is hungry because he's been fasting for 40 days. I don't know about you, I would be very hungry after 40 days of fasting. And so the devil comes to Jesus and he says to him, turn these rocks into bread so that you can eat. Now, in our brain, we think, oh, Jesus didn't do that because that would have been a sin. But would it have been a sin? In other words, would it have been evil or wicked or morally wrong for Jesus to feed himself, to use the power that God had given him to create food and feed himself? Because not very far later in Luke and Matthew, we have an account of Jesus turning loaves and fishes into a feast for 5,000 plus people. Now, most people think the feeding of the 5,000 was actually closer to 15 or 20,000 because of the women and children present that were not counted. So you're talking, Jesus takes and multiplies food for thousands and thousands of people. He does this to demonstrate his glory. He does this, the disciples eat. So it's not that he doesn't benefit those who are following him. Um, when Peter's mother-in-law has a fever, 
Jesus heals her so she can get up and serve them. So it's not like Jesus is not allowed to use his power to benefit himself or to benefit his people. Now, that's not the primary purpose of it, right? I'm not saying that that is because healing was a thing that Jesus did. And he did that for those that, that were before him that the Lord told him to heal. But the reality is, is there would have been nothing inherently sinful. In other words, there would have been nothing morally wrong in Jesus turning those stones into bread and eating after he had been fasting for 40 days. And yet he rejected the devil's offer and told him to that, that man does not live by bread alone and quoted scripture to him. So we have there, and then we come to Romans where, where Paul is speaking to the church there. And they've been quarreling with themselves over whether or not it is okay to eat meat that is bought in the marketplace there. Because they know that the meat there in the marketplace in Rome is frequently sacrificed to idols and blessed in the way that the Romans would bless their food. Now, Paul answers this question with, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Um, everything is indeed clean. I skipped a little bit there. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So... What Paul is basically saying here is there's absolutely nothing wrong with eating meat from the marketplace that has been sacrificed to idols because you know that it's not been sacrificed to anything of value, that there's nothing tainted about the food, that there is no power behind those rituals and therefore it's not wrong, morally speaking, right? It's not morally speaking wrong for you to eat that. However, in certain instances, you shouldn't because it has other implications. And then we're going to look at Genesis. And this is the last. So we're going to look at Genesis 3. Um, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we're going to stop there again. So there's a couple things here. Number one, they were naked. And up until that moment in time, it was not morally wrong for them to be naked. They suddenly became guilty when they took of the fruit that God told them not to take of. And so guilt entered by doing something that was disobedient to the Lord. But in and of itself, eating was not disobedient to the Lord. And the tree itself was not wicked. Now, how do we know that? Because God created the whole of creation. And at the end of that, before sin had entered, at the end of that, God said, it is very good. He made the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He made the tree of life. He made all of the trees in the garden and he placed the people there in it. And so the tree was a good tree. And there has to be a circumstance in which the fruit of that tree would be of benefit. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a good tree. So it is not inherently immoral, one would think, to eat fruit from that tree. Instead, it was wrong to disobey God. And that's not a moral issue necessarily, because sometimes God will tell you to do something. And that's something that you have been informed to do, that you have been called to do, might not make sense to you. There are commands in scripture where the Lord commanded Joshua to completely and totally kill all of the Amicalites. This is a passage of scripture that trips people up and gets them very uptight because there is a moral component in our minds to that and we cannot make sense of a God that would command his people to wipe out an entire group of uh, an entire people group, what we would today call genocide. And this actually provides fodder for people to, to be very angry at God and not believe he is real or believe that he's evil um, because they look upon these things as purely moral issues. And that's the deal is it's not a moral issue in this instance because the thing with God is we know that he is morally good and therefore he has knowledge that allows him to make decisions like that. Um, that are righteous decisions. In other words, God is never not morally good because he's not capable of not being morally good because he is God in the essence of good. That's a whole nother conversation and not where I'm going tonight. Tonight, I want us to understand though that it is sin for us to disobey the Lord. That is the core and the essence of what sin is. And that disobedience is not necessarily moral in nature. In other words, it is immoral for us to disobey God because he is an authority of us. But it's not something where we're sitting there going, oh, murdering somebody is a totally immoral act. It's not what it is. It is a separation from what God has called us to do. It is a missing the mark. And we always look at missing the mark as you know, 
the way we put that in our minds is that is a very small thing, right? So for me to goof up a little bit, miss the mark a little bit, is not some egregious and terrible thing. It's not like I shot somebody, right? But the trouble is missing the mark is actually sin. It's what separates us from God. It is the thing that we are working against. It is the thing that Jesus came to save us from, is that missing the mark. It isn't necessarily the egregious, terrible sins that he came to save us from. It's not the, the killing and the pillaging and the raping and the shooting and the, all of these things. That isn't what Jesus came to set us free from. He came to set us free from the things that keep us from God. And they're not necessarily what we would understand as morally wrong, as morally wicked. Now, why is this important? So recently I began having conversations. Um, I had had a conversation with somebody about alcoholism. And see, this is where we come to, back to that concept of moral therapeutic deism. One of the reasons that therapeutic deism has taken hold in the church is because we have medicalized so much of our understanding of ourselves. Things that once were viewed simply as sinful have instead become diseases. They've become illnesses. They've become addictions. Because if they are diseases, illnesses, and addictions, then they aren't necessarily, well, they are still sins, but we can overlook them. Because when you make it about morals, when you make sins only about morals, it is about a wicked or righteous choice. And if you are sick, you don't have a choice. And therefore, you can't really be sinning because it's not really immoral what you're doing. Because you're not really doing it on your own. It's not something you have a choice about. And so it's not really immoral and therefore it's not actually sin. So this is the issue with this. On the one hand, we hold God accountable for things that we can't understand. But on the other hand, we stop holding ourselves accountable for sinful behaviors because we don't consider them to be immoral. And the more culture medicalizes those things, the more it condemns God for things that are not either God's fault or they are not immoral and therefore not something to condemn God for. This comes back to our understanding that God, the goodness of God is about making us happy. So when we medicalize things like homosexuality, we medicalize things like transgenderism, um, we medicalize things like alcoholism and, um, any number of other types of behaviors that we know to be wrong, 
but we want them to be okay. We medicalize those things and call them sickness or addiction or some other thing or a psychological disorder. And we call them no longer immoral because of that. But then we call God immoral for telling us that we're not supposed to do those things, but creating us in a way that makes us do those things. And it leads us in circles that keep us far, far away from God. And it is a twisting of the enemy that he does this. So we need to get straight in our brain what sin is. Sin is anything we do that is in disobedience to the Lord God. Anything that we do that elevates something besides him to the place of God in our lives. Anything we do that we put before being submitted to the Lord is a sin. And it's not because it's morally wrong. It is because it is a violation of our relationship with God. It is a rebellion against his authority in our lives. And so for those of us that have addiction issues, like I used to smoke, or if you are an alcoholic and you drink, because drinking is not morally wrong, by the way, according to scripture, there's nothing in there that calls drinking morally wrong, but it does very much call drunkenness a sin. Now, right now we say, well, he's an alcoholic or she's an alcoholic and that's why they do that and it's not their fault and therefore it's not a sin. And we talk to them in terms of you should get help and you need to, you know, you, you need to ask for help. Um, you should just try to quit drinking. You should just stay away from it. Um, and then we pat them on the head when they fail and they fall and they are trapped. They are trapped in the power of that forever because we refuse to tell them that that is a sin. And because it is a sin, here's the key to this. Because it is a sin, you are not able to deliver yourself from it. I knew there was a reason seedbed was ringing in my brain. So seedbed this morning talked about Jesus in the name of Jesus. We needed a savior. That's why he came. We needed a savior. And the reason we need a savior is because when it comes to sin, we are not able to deliver ourselves. There is no amount of willpower in the world that will make you stop sinning. But when we think it's an addiction or we think it's a disease or we think it's an illness or we think it's a moral failing, but we want to pretend it's not a moral failing, we struggle on our own over and over and over again and fail over and over and over again and stay trapped forever in our sins because we don't recognize them for what they are. We cannot repent from something we don't know to be sin. That is why this current ideology that presses against human sexuality, that presses not, not, not just with homosexuality and transgenderism, but the press towards divorce, towards promiscuity, towards 
multiple relationships towards all of that. That is why that is so pernicious is because it rejects the idea that it is sin and it leaves us trapped in relationship paradigms and identity paradigms that leave us miserable and separated from God. And we cannot, we cannot repent from them because we cannot recognize what it is. And so we stay trapped far from God to the point where we just decide that we really don't want that kind of God because that kind of God is cruel and mean and immoral because he made us with these feelings and he made us with this, the way that we are. And he made us with these addictions and he made us with these proclivities and no loving God, no loving God would make us that way. And then tell us not to do those things and tell us that it was immoral and sinful and, and that we were immoral, evil people. And God doesn't, in the way that we understand evil, God doesn't mean that those decisions are morally reprehensible. That's not the problem. The problem is, is they are not in line with his design. They are not in line with his goodness. And because of that, they separate us from him. They sever us from him. And as long as we hold on to those things, if we come close to God, it will cause us harm and distress. And so there's actually also no way for God to make us happy as long as we are intent on hanging on to our addictions and intent on hanging on to our sinfulness, intent on hanging on to our identity that leads us away from God's direction and command in our lives. As long as we do that, as long as we hold those things, we will never be happy. And we will blame God for it because we have this concept of moral therapeutic deism that he's just there to help us feel good. And obviously he must be a bad God or he must be a weak God because we don't feel good because we continue to do the things that are killing us. We need to understand sin for what it is. There is a moral component to some of it. Please don't hear that wrong, that there is no moral. There is. There is a moral component to many of the things that God tells us are sins. Those things that hurt other people are morally reprehensible, but I will tell you something, not holding to the Sabbath is not a moral issue. There's nothing wicked about not resting. However, it will kill you just as surely as the wicked and evil and nasty thing you do when you commit adultery or covet your neighbor's wife or ox or car or house. There is a morally reprehensible component to torturing little children. But there's not necessarily a morally, from our understanding, reprehensible component to not fasting or to not washing our hands and our, our dishes properly the way they did in the rituals. And there are things that God prescribes because they're good for us, not because they're bad, not because the opposite is necessarily morally wrong, 
but because it's not going to be good for us in the other sense of good. God wants what is best for us. And oftentimes that's not going to make us happy in the moment, but in the long term, it will draw us near to him, which will give us eternal joy. So I feel disjointed in this message tonight, and I'm going to be honest with that. And I pray that if that is the case, that you would forgive it. And yet I still have the feeling that this is supposed to be posted as is because I think someone needs to hear it. So I want to pray for us right here and right now that we would understand what God is speaking about sin because I think it's important. This is something that has led so many people astray and has left so many people so trapped near to God enough to believe that they are safe and far enough away that they are still dying every day and struggling with it and guilty for it and miserable with it and unable to repent because they can't see what they're doing as sinful because they have been told over and over again that it's just the way they are. And that if they accept that as wicked, then they must be wicked. And there's nothing they can do about that. So I pray God tonight that you would reveal to us the things we hold on to that are sinful, but that we have convinced ourselves are okay because they're not bad in the moral sense. That we don't see any moral reason why it wouldn't be okay for us to do the things we do. And because of that, Lord, we are certain that we misunderstood you when you said it was a sin. Lord, I pray that you would show us the places where we need to repent from things that we have misunderstood your meaning on. I pray that you would help us to repent from the notion that we have any ground whatsoever to pass moral judgments on you. I pray that you would help us, Lord God, to understand that you are God and have created all of creation and you know all of the details, Father God, of everything that we need, of every single spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical need we have. You know every bit of it, Lord God. And you have plans and purposes to meet each one of those needs if we will behave in obedience to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to kick the sin of rebellion. Because I believe, Father, if you help us to kick the sin of rebellion right down at the, at the core, if you bring us to a place of willing submission to you, Father, the rest of these things that we have convinced ourselves, there's nothing more than medical things that doctors should be taking care of and psychologists and counselors and medications. If we can bring those things to you as the sins that they are, Father, instead of hiding them in shame because we have been convinced by society that we should not feel bad about them. Father, if you would help us to bring them to you so that we could be free. Lord God, for everybody who is listening to this tonight who is held in bondage to alcoholism, 
to drug addiction, to pornography addiction, gambling addictions. Father, for everybody who is held in bondage to these things because they have been told that it's just who they are, that it's part of their genetics, that it's normal, that it's not wicked, and so therefore it can't be sinful because it's just a medical issue. It can't be sinful for them to be doing these things because it's not immoral necessarily because they can't help it. Father God, for everybody who has bought that lie, I pray that you would give them freedom tonight. I pray that you would convict them of their sinful state. Not as the world would do to drive them into the ground and, and smash them, Father, to pieces with the guilt of such a thing. But convict them, Lord God, of their sinful state so they can carry that to you, Lord, so that they can hear from you that Christ Jesus forgives their sins, that he died for them to set them free, that the blood of the cross, Lord God, comes to cover those sins. And by covering, we don't just mean that it's going to pour across it and make it so that nobody can see it, Father God. We mean that it covered the cost of those sins. It covered the cost of deliverance. It covered the cost of redemption, Father. And as the blood of Jesus Christ washes over us, it washes us clean. It removes the stain of those sins. It removes the power of those sins. Father, we have to know that it's sin, though, and we have to give it to you. So, Father, for those that are suffering and stuck, who believe that it is <laughs> a loving God's job to make us happy and therefore doubt that we are loved because we're not happy. God, I pray you would reveal yourself. Reveal your overwhelming love and your overwhelming joy, Father, that is so much better than happy. For those that are struggling, Lord God, with their identity, with knowing who they are, knowing what you've made them, whatever it is they're struggling with, Father, that they have convinced themselves that that is also not sin, that that rebellion against who you call them to be is not sin, Father, because they can't help it. Father, I pray that you would convict them and that they would know, not because they are horrible, terrible, wicked people that are beyond redemption, and not because you want to destroy their lives and the things that they love. But Father, because they are beloved. They are beloved of God. You have made them, Father, in your image. And you have sacrificed everything to draw them back to you. To help them see themselves whole and holy. As you made them to be. As you desire them to come back to. Father, I pray that you would give them freedom. Father, I pray that you would continue to show me all the places, Father, where I'm still stumbling away from you. Make me whole and holy, Lord, today and every day. 
Ask all of this tonight, Father God, in Jesus' name, and by your spirit, and all for your honor and glory, Lord. Amen. Be blessed.